Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcroft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Live Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening where we continue our reflections into the book of Revelation. We will hear in just a short while continue our reflection into chapter 17, huh? Chapter 17. But before we get into that, I just wanted to make a couple of announcements and just a few FYIs. This Wednesday, I will be given a talk at St. John's titled Rediscovering God's Love and Our Response to God's Love. For those of you who are interested, it will be a time where you can go deeper in your faith, where you can spend time with God. And that's what this season of Advent is all about, right? Spending more time with God. And so this Wednesday at St. John the Baptist Catholic Church at 7 o'clock, again, I will be given a talk on God's love and our response to God's love. And and so hopefully this will be time uh, well spent for you if you are able to come, of course. And afterwards, I will also be doing a book signing. So if that interests you, please do come this Wednesday at St. John the Baptist Catholic Church, 7 p.m. In mentioning Advent, I should comment on something else here. I know there are a couple of questions regarding the relationship between Advent and the book of Revelation, right, and the second coming. And I think you you listeners are on to something when you ask me about Advent and the book of Revelation because there is a direct relationship. There is a direct connection. Mindful that the word Advent means what? Coming, appearance, horizon. So if you have been with me over the past three months, you can hear the language of the book of Revelation in those words. So what I decided to do was... Um, Devote a whole program to that, but it will be something we treat next week. Uh, this week, again, I'm doing parish missions, and I just won't have the time, per se, to spend more time with that topic, because I do want to prepare something fresh for that reflection. And so, if you are one who are interested in that topic, the relationship between Advent and the Book of Revelation, I will carve out some time next week on air to talk about that. Okay, with that, why don't we jump back into the book of Revelation and chapter 17. And what I think I'm going to do is go back and reread chapter 17, verses 7 to 11, because there's a few things that I did not talk about that I do want to talk about before we move on to verse 12. So this is chapter 17, verses 7 to 11. But the angel said to me, why marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is to ascend from the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to behold the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. And that's what I want to spend time with, huh? Wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to perdition. Okay, what can we first say about the word wisdom? This is something we haven't talked about in quite some time, and 
while we touched upon wisdom last week, I, I do want to spend more time with it. What does that word mean? Well, it comes from a Greek word that simply means insight, right? Insight. So the person who is wise is someone who has insight. Now, you put this in the context of our relationship with Jesus Christ, and what we ought to appreciate immediately is that we cannot gain insight. We cannot gain wisdom into the ways of God unless we have a personal relationship with God, unless we are inquiring to God about the ways in which He works in our ordinary and everyday life, you see. Now, there's another aspect to wisdom, and that is that we are to never rely on what we think we know. Huh? That is a verse that actually comes to us from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and following. Do not rely on what you think you know, but trust in the what? Wisdom of God. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and following. Proverbs is what? But the wisdom of God. I talk about this now because I do believe there is a grave tendency to rely on what we think we know, and Scripture calls that out. And how might we better understand this? Well, let us ask the question. Are we placing a definitive judgment on something based upon something we actually never saw? Or maybe, as Scripture says, based upon something we think we know? So are we looking at something from the subjective and remember what subjective means, what is internal, unknown, unseen, or what is objective, what is external, revealed, seen. Because you see, my friends, we can place a definitive judgment upon something, identify a thing for what it is, if we can actually see it for what it is. But I'm concerned that in the spiritual life, we place definitive, absolute judgments on things that we just cannot know. And oh, by the way, this is why Jesus says, do not judge. He's saying, do not condemn the heart. Do not place any kind of definitive judgment on what you don't see. That's very dangerous. Does he tell us never to judge? Not in the context of making a judgment upon what is revealed. I mean, why would he call us to chasten one another? Why would Paul time and time again call Christians to reprove one another if one was to never judge. Well, see, that doesn't make sense, but it only makes sense in light of the subjective and the objective. So do not rely on what you think you know, but trust in the wisdom of God, right? Insight gained based upon your personal relationship with Jesus Christ and then what you can objectively discern. If I am a reporter and I want to report well, on any one particular situation. Shouldn't I get witnesses to the very thing that I want to report on? For example, maybe there was a fire at a restaurant and you want to report what took place at the restaurant. Do you just show up, look at the fire and draw conclusions, unscientific conclusions? Or do you speak with firemen and witnesses about what they saw or what they think they know, scientifically speaking? If you're a good reporter, you're going to speak with the firemen, you're going to speak with the witnesses, and you're going to try to draw subjective conclusions or objective conclusions. Well, if you're a good reporter, objective conclusions, right? Good journalism is going to report facts. That's foundational. 
if all you're left with is an agenda or what you think you know, that's very troubling and it's bad journalism, <laughs> okay? So we are called to be, if I dare say, spiritual journalists in our spiritual walk. That is to say, bearing witness to the truth of Jesus Christ, what is revealed in divine revelation, and sharing that with the world, what Christ has indeed revealed, okay? So we are called to be wise, and we should never reduce being wise with just the intellect, per se. You've heard me say before, Satan has supreme intelligence. He has a supreme intellect, but he's not wise. Huh? This can be quickly understood in the light of the temptation narrative. From the outsider's view, Satan looks at Christ and he looks completely broken down. And at that one point where he appeared to be completely broken down, Satan swoops in, right? He thinks he has him right where he wants him. But what he doesn't know is that, that Christ was fasting. And what he doesn't know is that Christ was on bended knee, drawing strength from the Father. That in point of fact, he was actually stronger than he was 40 days before, or for that matter, a day before. Satan is not wise because he is not humble. He has no knees. So there's a difference between the intellect and being wise. We draw from the intellect, sure, because think about what I was just saying. You use the intellect to make objective observations, but that is never enough. It must always submit itself to humility. And that inquiry into God, Lord, why am I being made to see this or that? What are you wanting to disclose? And that really is so much a part of what wisdom is all about. Okay, all of that being said, let us go back into now more of a biblical commentary to verses 7 to 11 and what John wants us to see. Here, John tells us wisdom is needed to discern the meaning of the seven heads. This is reminiscent of the beast in chapter 13, verse 18 where wisdom is required to know the meaning of what? 666. We talked about that. Here, the seven hills represent the first seven emperors of the Roman Empire. This is a, a consensus that you'll find in many commentaries. In point of fact, when we begin counting with Julius, as the historians of John's day did, we learn that Nero is the sixth king, the one who is reigning at the time John writes Revelation. This is who John is referring to by the phrase, the one who is. The Caesar who reigned after Nero, Galba, only reigned six months, fulfilling what John said, when he comes, he must remain only a little while. But the question that begs to be asked, in the light of what we just read, is who is the eighth? Huh? At the outset, it is noteworthy that John does not call him the eighth, but simply an eighth. This is because he only saw seven heads and seven hills. The eighth, therefore, is not to be exclusively understood in the same way that the other seven are. Kind of a subtle point, but necessary nonetheless. He is not necessarily the successor of the seventh king. At the same time, he does belong to the seven. Now, in connection with this, it is important to realize that though John has foretold the collapse and, and resurgence of the empire, 
his list of seven kings stops short of the reign of, of Vespasian, the 10th Caesar, who brought about its revitalization. John is using the number eight then symbolically. Eight was a symbol of resurrection and new beginnings in first century Judaism and Christianity. The Christians, my friends, especially understood this in reference to Christ, who was raised from the dead on the what day? Eighth day. And a little fascinating fact, if one calculated the numeric value of Jesus' name, one would find that it equals what? Eight, eight, eight. So the eighth king is likely a reference to the reestablishment of the empire, its resurrection under Vespasian. All right. Revelation chapter 17, verses 12 to 14. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind and give over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Now, drawing on Daniel chapter 7, verses 4 to 7, John continues to use the imagery of ten horns to signify what but ten kings. These ten horns derive their authority from the beast. Some have seen these ten kings as representing ten rulers appointed by Caesar. The Herodian dynasty would be included with these client kings. Now, what is harder to explain is what John means when he says that they have yet received royal power. And uh, like Michael Barber and others, quite frankly, I have yet to find any kind of satisfactory explanation. Regardless, the ten horns represent the sum total of those who receive their power from the Roman emperor and rule under him. All right, verses 15 to 18. And he said to me, the waters that you saw where their harlot is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the harlot. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and giving over their royal power to the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city which has dominion over the kings of the earth. So John's description of the waters as the peoples and nations very much confirm what we have been talking about. The aforementioned interpretation that the meaning of the harlot sitting on the waters is Jerusalem sitting atop and supported by Gentile authority. The image of the beast turning on the harlot and burning her down is a graphic description of the destruction of Jerusalem. For in the year 70 AD, Rome truly did burn down the city. But how did Jerusalem have dominion over the kings of the earth? On the surface, it seems that Rome would fit the description much better than Jerusalem, per se. Yet John speaks of a, what, spiritual dominion. You see, my friends, as God's holy city, Jerusalem had preeminence among the nations. Indeed, in the glory days of Solomon, the nations came to recognize this, coming to Jerusalem to learn the ways of God. In point of fact, if you were to go back into the Old Testament, we find numerous examples 
of pagan kings coming to understand the spiritual headship of Jerusalem, trying to draw insight, if you will, not to overuse that word, into how to spiritually lead. Now, since she was called to lead the nations back to God as the Lord's light to them, she was given a sacred authority over them. Yet, as we have discussed in great detail, the great city of Jerusalem turned sinful itself. Jerusalem became a hypocrite and a bastion of wickedness. She to whom the other nations were to turn for guidance, my friends, quite simply, led them astray. She is responsible, that is Jerusalem, for getting the other nations drunk with immorality, as we talked about in the opening verses of this chapter. Essentially, my friends, by forsaking her God, she has not only condemned herself to judgment, but also has led the Gentiles into blindness. Simply put, Jerusalem became a false prophet. And there's a lesson to be had here. When we have been given authority in Christ, we are called to bear witness to that truth of Jesus Christ and the love of Jesus Christ and to be mindful that one is anchored in the other. You know, someone recently asked me about how we are called to love without agenda. I've used that phrase before, but always within the context of truth, because when you authentically love as Jesus Christ loves, there is never a time where truth is not a part of that love, right? What did Jesus say? I am a way, a truth, and a life? No, he didn't say that. He spoke in the absolute imperative, I am the way, the truth, the life. Yes, I am love, and that love is life, and it is the way, but it is always anchored in the truth. So there is never a time where love is void of truth within its proper Christian context. No. In point of fact, the more you love, the more you invite others around you into a relationship with Jesus Christ, who is love, yes, but one who also reveals truth. And so when we are in a loving, personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we bear witness to this truth, the truth of Jesus Christ and the objective moral standard that he has set up. This is what is always before us. Amen to that. Okay, there is a reflection given here by Peter Williamson on identifying figures from Revelation in a world that I do think is very pertinent to what we have been talking about over the course of just not these past few weeks, but really the past few months. And he makes the point here, although we cannot rule out that the number 10 will have literal significance in the fulfillment of the prophecies of Revelation, previous mistaken identifications should make us cautious. Okay, so he's, again, speaking to what we've talked about before, but I think he actually draws out a very important example here, and it, it's tied to Hal Lindsey and the late great planet Earth. He says that in the late great planet Earth, Hal Lindsey said that the 10 nations of the European common market were the allies of the beast. Now that the common market has evolved into the European Economic Union and grown to 28 member nations, dispensationalist Christians have speculated that the United Nations Security Council might be expanded to 10 nations that will rule the world. You see, my friends, in attempting to discern parallels in our day to the figures in Revelation, we might do better to focus on similarities in attitude and action rather than in the details that may be symbolic or may pertain to its first century manifestation that we have been drawing out in its detail. 
For instance, to identify what in our day resembles the beast, we ought to look for a government that uses its authority to persecute Christians. We might also consider whether that government or world leader claims for itself prerogatives that belong to God and God alone. Throughout history, many rulers and governments have arisen whose conduct certainly has resembled that of the beast. We've already talked about Nero. Hitler and Stalin certainly were two of, were two of several such figures in the 20th century. Many Christians who lived under the rule of these oppressors thought that they were dealing certainly with what but the Antichrist. Moreover, if these Christians remained faithful to Jesus, refused to compromise with evil, and persevered in faith and hope, they would be applying the book of Revelation correctly. Why? Because these political figures, to the likes of Hitler and Stalin, manifest the spirit of the beast in their time, even though it is now very clear they were not its definitive and final manifestation. Similarly, many false religious leaders, movements, and institutions have arisen that share in the spirit of the false prophet, either by false teaching, by promoting idolatrous devotion to a nation or government, or for that matter, by again persecuting Christians. In the end, my friends, persecution of Christians characterizes the beast, characterizes the Antichrist, the false prophet. And we are called to read the signs of the times. And part of reading the signs of the times for what it is, is to identify the very thing we were just talking about, the characters of the beast, the ways in which nations and governments and institutions parody God when they have no business doing so. Okay, all that being said, last week I was talking about how Satan parodies the mass. And by parody, what do I mean? But hijack, take something and invert it, trying to twist it, flipping it upside down without having any intention of turning it right side up. After I was talking last week, when I left the radio program and I was thinking about what we talked about here on air, I was thinking about one Father Morth. He's a chief exorcist who actually just passed away. He's written a book called An Exorcist Explains the Demonic, the Antics of Satan and His Army of Fallen Angels. And in this book, he talks about the Black Mass, a parody of the Eucharistic celebration. Now, I just want to read for you some of this chapter where he talks about the Black Mass as being a parody of the Eucharistic celebration. Listen to what Father Morth says. This will probably have chills running up and down your spine. And this is Father Amorth. The Black Mass is a parody of the Catholic Mass, in which one adores and exalts Satan. Usually it is officiated at night because the darkness permits greater secrecy and because during the night fewer people are found at prayer, which disturbs the ritual. Isn't that interesting? I think there he's very much speaking to the intercessory power of prayer. He goes on, during the celebration, the words and the external signs of the Eucharistic liturgy are used, but always in a contrary sense in order to manifest opposition to God. There is always a satanic priest officiating who wears blasphemous vestments, an altar represented by a nude woman, possibly a virgin, on whom very serious acts of profanity of the Eucharist, usually stolen from a church, are performed 
with words of consecration proclaimed in a contrary sense with an overturned crucifix. Only members of the satanic sect who are sworn to secrecy may participate. Non-members are never permitted to attend unless it is hoped that, having already been seduced by the perversions and the illusion of power, they may decide to enter the sect. In general, the black masses are celebrated by small groups of 10 or at most 15 of the quote-unquote faithful. As in the church, some of the official rites are required and are tied to particular feast days. The most important is Halloween, which falls on the night between October 31st and November 1st of each year. It is considered the magic new year. I think that's important to note. The second preceding our feast of the presentation of Jesus in the temple on February 2nd. The night before, in fact, begins the magic spring. The summer magic is the third satanic solemnity and occurs on the night between April 30th and May 1st. During the year, Satanists often choose nights when the new moon is inaugurated because it is particularly dark. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> the officiator of these rites is usually someone who is consecrated to Satan, and although it is not stated, this person is also usually possessed by the devil. It may also not be so. I am certain, however, that during these rituals, as stated above, the Eucharistic hosts are profaned, having been stolen from tabernacles or taken by some of the faithful at communion, during mass and not consumed. And he concludes, I once exercised a person who had purloined a consecrated host during a mass in order to participate at a black mass. He robbed hosts everywhere, even though he had already begun a courageous path towards liberation. According to what he told me, he was acting in a state of complete unconsciousness, that is, in the state of a trance typical of persons possessed by the devil. So my friends, why do I read this? Well, again, to give you an illustration of what I was talking about when speaking to the way in which Satan plagiarizes truth. And I don't know if there's a stronger illustration than to really reflect with someone like Father Morth on the relationship between the Mass and, of course, its inversion, the Black Mass. And so what does that mean for us? Well, my dear friends, it means we are called to put on the armor of God. And in doing so, be mindful that there is a very real war, and it's called a spiritual war. And with the Mass and our devotions, all of which lead us to a stronger personal relationship with Jesus Christ, a relationship that allows us to see things for what they are, a relationship that helps mature that all-important spiritual gift of wisdom. Huh? Okay, with that, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.